Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we start, Lord, we do. We want that emotional healing. We want to have it in our core, Lord. Not just on the outside, but in the inside. Lord, we want to begin to understand how loved we really are. We want to feel valued. And so, Lord, give us that. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to review. What was God experiencing before any creation took place? Loving while simultaneously what? Why did He create you? To experience the pleasure of loving while simultaneously being loved. And you can have all the peripheral stuff, but unless you have that, you'll never find why you're alive, why you're existing, what your purpose is. That's why you're here. Part of experiencing that is being freed from those things in your past that make you feel unlovable or un or of lack of value. People, seminars that focus on a person's behavior, they will say that in order to be freed from your past, you need to look at those that have hurt you and you need to what? Forgive them. Anyone ever heard that before? You need to forgive them. And I don't discredit that. That's true. I think you also need to forgive yourself. Isn't that true for things you've done that maybe someone else didn't do to you, but think mistakes you've made? But rather this afternoon, focusing on what you need to do, which one of the four would that be? Seeing, thinking, feeling, or behaving? Rather than having you focus on forgiving others or forgiving yourself, I want to help you see something. Would that be all right? There's something that if we can see it, it will awaken both of those that we've just mentioned. In Romans 6.14, Paul wrote, Sin shall not be what? Master over you, for you are not under the law, but under what? The first thing I want you to understand is that it's an understanding of grace that enables us to no longer be mastered by what? By sin. Are you here today? Speak up so we can get out of here by 4.30, alright? Six, Romans 6.14 Paul says, Sin shall not master you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. There's something about grace and encountering that that enables us no longer to be controlled by sin. In what sense are we no longer controlled by sin? I've had some behavioralists. Do you understand what I mean by that? People that focus on the behavior rather than the feeling, thinking, or seeing. Just on what you do and what you don't do. They've said, well, Herb, it's about your behavior. Your behavior will change. And I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that a person's behavior will change if their insides can become whole. Isn't that true? But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about sin in a behavioral sense in the future no longer mastering you. He's saying all of those past sins that you've committed, all of those mistakes, your sins, your, your errors, your shortcomings, your failings, no longer will your past master you. No longer will it control you. No longer will it dominate you. God's going to set you free from all of your sins. Through an encounter with His grace. How many would like to experience that? To be totally clean 
from your past. Well, let's see if we can catch a vision of it. In Romans 2, verse 4, Paul says here, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads you, what does it say? To repentance. Now let's focus on the chronology here. Which happens first? God's kindness or your repentance? Which one? Are you sure? Then why is it that I bump into religious folks all over the world who believe in the Bible, but they've made a mistake, they think God's against them. Anyone ever struggled with that before, thinking like God's against you? They think God's against you and they're down on their knees repenting, saying they're sorry, trying to restore God's kindness towards them. Anyone here ever wrestled with that, what I'm explaining right here? You ever been there? Good meaning, well-meaning good religious people in their experience don't understand what Romans 2 is talking about. Because they still feel as if their repentance is going to lead to God's kindness. Have you ever been there before? But that's not what Paul says. Well, why do we feel that way if it's not true? Well, there's other verses in the Bible. Have you read those before? Some of them are quite scary. Look at 1 John 1, nine. What's that first word there? That is the biggest two-letter word in the English language. Circle it. This verse says, if we what? Confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us. This is where we get some of these wrong pictures of God. We misinterpret some of these words. We think, well, I've done wrong. We assume God's against us. But if I confess it, then God will what? He'll let me off the hook. Isn't that what we say? He'll forgive it and He'll be kind to me. There's a challenge with interpreting these verses this way. Because if you haven't noticed it yet, in Romans 2 it says that God's kindness leads to our repentance. Would you say that God's kindness and His forgiveness are related? Would you say that our confession and our repentance are related? But in Romans 2, which happens first? Repentance, sorry, which happens first? Kindness and forgiveness? Or forgiveness, confession and repentance? Which one happens first in Romans 2? Do you understand what I'm saying? When we get to 1 John 1, 9, which one happens first? Your confession. Do you see the seeming contradiction between these two? In one, God, we interpret that God's angry, but if I confess it, He'll be nice. On the other verse, we're getting this picture that God's nice, and that'll lead us to confess and repent. Well, which one's true? Which one do we normally feel is true? Is there anyone here that's ever done anything wrong before? Anybody here? Anybody here? When you do something wrong, when you do something you know you shouldn't do, what does that create in you psychologically and emotionally? Guilt? What else? Shame, what else? Fear, maybe, what else? Alienation? Embarrassment, that's right. Anything else? Rejection, a feeling of rejection? Anyone here ever wrestled with a sense of condemnation before? You feel condemned for what you've done. We immediately begin to think that all these feelings of condemnation and shame, who do we assume these feelings are coming from? God. We think He's against us now. 
And we need to go and change it. Isaiah 59 gives us a secret into our misunderstanding here. I know much of what I've explained sounds like popular Christian teaching, doesn't it? Repentance, confession, all of that. Once again, the majority is rarely correct. It doesn't matter what the masses of Christianity is teaching today. It only matters what the Bible teaches. Amen? Are you willing to see it differently? In Isaiah 59 verse 2, Isaiah said that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. When we read this verse, what do we picture God doing when we sin, when we do something wrong? What do we picture Him doing? Hiding His face, turning His back, anything else? Condemning us? You know what's in leaving? You know what's interesting about this verse? We, re- we read it and we immediately picture what God's doing. Didn't we just do that? Does this verse tell, talk at all about what God does when we sin? Once again, a grammar lesson. What is the subject of this verse? It's your iniquities. It's your sins. And verbs talk about what the subject is doing. Do they not? This isn't talking about what God does when you sin. It talks about what your sin does to you when you sin. Do you understand the difference? When we sin, our sins begin to create a psychological and emotional dynamic of shame and guilt that begins to hide God's face from us. Does it not? It makes us feel like God's against us. Like He's far away. Anyone ever felt like God was far away from you because of something you'd done? Romans 2.15, it tells us why we experience this. It says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their... What's that word? Anybody got a conscience? Anybody got one of those? When you do something wrong, where is it that we feel that shame and guilt? In our conscience. It says, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else what? Paul is clearly describing here what happens to us every time one of us has a failure. We have a conscience inside of us and our own thoughts begin to accuse us. But do not make the mistake of thinking that this is God's attitude towards any of us when we make a failure. You see, 1 Samuel 24 verse 5, it says that afterward, David's conscience bothered him. Why? Because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. What was bothering David here? God? Or his conscience? And we need to make a distinction between the two. Some people will say, well, Herb, no, no. God speaks to us through our conscience. They're one and the same. Be very careful with that line of reasoning. Do some people have a dead conscience? Yes. Do some people have a hyperactive conscience where they're not doing anything wrong but they still feel guilty all the time? Is God speaking to them through that conscience? No. When the conscience condemns you, is God speaking through your conscience? No. Hear me. God never condemns the sinner. He convicts sinners. He doesn't condemn them. Do you understand the difference? When you feel a sense of condemnation, 
That is not from Him. That is being set in motion by your, by your sin. And we're going to talk more about that tomorrow. But this is what God is saying. Your sin will no longer have control of you, inflicting you with shame and guilt and a sense of condemnation. God wants to set you free from what your past sins are creating for you today. How many would like that? That's what He came here for. He's working in contrast to what our sin is doing. I'm going to teach you a little Greek and Hebrew this afternoon. Many people are unaware of this, but many people also know it as well. The Old Testament was written in what original language? Anyone here know? Hebrew. Good. We have some students here. The New Testament was written originally in what language? Greek. That's right. The New Testament, Greek... Old Testament Hebrew. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew and Greek words this afternoon because of one reason. We're going to be looking at the word forgiveness. The challenge with this word is we have one English word for it, but guess how many Hebrew and Greek words there are for it? There's five. There's three Hebrew and two, Greek. And all of them are referring to something different. And if all we have is the English word forgiveness, we don't see things correctly. Are you with me? We have misperceptions and wrong understandings of what it's all about. In Psalms 86 verse 5 it says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to what? Forgive. Look at the tense here. Has it happened yet? But is he ready to do it? The Hebrew word here is salak. And the best way I know to illustrate these words to you this afternoon that I'm going to share is with a story. Now, in a few years ago, well, before even that, when I was a teenager, my wife and I were dating. We looked at each other and we made a solemn vow to each other. We made one promise. It's the only promise we've ever made to each other. One day we looked each other in the eye and we swore to something. Anyone want to guess what that was? Any ideas? Talk to me so we can go home. Love each other forever. That, that was a, that's good. I wish we had promised that. Anything else? Any other good guesses? What we promised? To always tell the truth. That would have been good too. Anything else? Be faithful to each other. No, that's good, but we didn't promise that. Anything else? To always forgive? Never go to bed angry? Never leave you? Not to take each other for granted. You guys are so wholesome. I wish we'd made promises like this. But the fact is, my wife and I, when we were teenagers, we looked each other in the eye, and the only thing we've ever promised to each other is this. We swore that no matter how old we got, no matter what came our way in life, no matter what the future brought to us, never would we ever own a minivan. <laughs> and for those of you who own one, I'm sorry. No, no, no teenager looks at a minivan going down the road and says, dude, that is a sweet ride. No, it is, it is a sad state of affairs. 
And then when we were having our six-year-old, I remember we were looking at our vehicle situation at that time. We noticed that nothing really had the room that we needed for this new child. And it's not, it's not the kid that takes up so much space. It's all the stuff. Yeah, all the stuff you got to drag with that kid. And so we were at the dealership lot one day in Spokane. That's where we used to live. We're not, we don't live there now. But We just couldn't find anything that met our needs. And so my wife looked at me. Remember I said we can communicate without exchanging words? She looked at me and I knew exactly what she was thinking. I said, oh, please, no. I said, give me 24 hours. I'm going to pray. So I went home and I got on my knees. And I said, God, I know there are starving children in Africa. I know there are bigger items on your plate today. I think God's interested in the little stuff in our lives though too, don't you? I said, God, the reason I'm coming to you with this is because it's going to take a miracle. Only you can do this. This is an oxymoron by its very nature. These are two polar opposites. I'm going to need you to bring them together for me, Lord. I need you to help me find a cool minivan. (laughs) Only you can do it. And so I got online and I began to peruse all of the minivans that were caravan, minivans that are available. And then I found one. I thought, wow, this is amazing. It really does look cool. It looks like a little egg going down the road. A little Tylenol gel cap on wheels. A spaceship even. I'm going to, that's what I want, Lord. And so I began to look at all the features and write them down and what we could afford at that time. And I began to call all of the places on the internet that I found that they were for sale. And I found one. I just fell in love with it. It was just perfect, exactly what I wanted for the price that I wanted. The problem is we were living in Washington State. And this minivan was in a little town called Clinton, New Jersey. (laughs) Called up the dealership. They said, where are you calling from? I said, don't worry about that. I just want to know if you still have it. I I told them to hold it for me. I would be there. I got on the airline accounts that are out there that we have. And, you know, as much as I travel, I am gone 38 to 42 weekends a year. I have got to have some frequent flyer miles somewhere. So sure enough, I had a free ticket sitting there and I thought, well, it's all in a day's work. I'll just fly over, look at the van. If I like it, I'll drive it back. If I don't like it, I'll fly back. So I got my ticket, showed up at the airport, got on the plane, flew to New Jersey, got off the plane. The dealership was nice enough to pick me up at the airport. Arrive at the dealership and... You know how they have those big glass windows at the front of car dealers? This glass window was lined with car salesmen. They were all just looking out at the car, wondering which nut had flown in to buy a car. And I got out of the car, I set down my suitcase, I, I, I looked at them, I walked in. The first question they asked me, do you know what it was? They took one look at me and they said, uh, did your father come with you? I get that a lot. Fact is, I'm really 50. 
I just look a lot younger because I follow those principles about fitness and health I'm going to share with you. Got it? Hmm. <laughs> the next question they asked was, don't they make cars in Washington? I looked at them and I said, do you want me to buy this vehicle or not? They didn't say another word. We went straight to the desk, looked at all the papers, went out, looked at the vehicle. I fell in love with it. I purchased it. Got in the vehicle, drove it all the way back to Washington. It was just a beautiful ride. Oh, well, they don't pay me enough to advertise for them. But I'll tell you personally afterwards. I remember showing up at my home. It had taken me two and a half days to get all the way back across the country. Not because I was speeding, just because I was driving constantly. It was just a comfortable ride. I got out, I ran inside. I was so excited to share it with my wife. I brought her out. I said, look at this vehicle. Isn't it beautiful? She said, oh, it's nice. And walked back in. (laughs) Some women do have interest in vehicles. Mine doesn't. Now, the rest of the story is hypothetical. Everything I've shared with you is true. The rest is hypothetical. Let's say that you came to visit me. And you wake up early in the morning before I do, and that's not hard. God wanted me to see the sunrise. He would have put it at a different time of day. you discover you've forgotten your toothbrush at home. And I like you, but I am not going to share with you mine, okay? You've got to get your own on this one. So I'm not awake yet. You go downstairs to the living room. You take the keys off the wall. And you think, ah, Herb won't mind. Now, have you asked me if you can borrow my van? No. It's just a detail in the story. You get in my van. You start the engine. You're driving down the road. And where we used to live in Washington... We had a thing there called free-range laws. Does anyone here know what those are? Do you understand what that is? I didn't know what those were when I moved there. That means in that area you don't hit deer. You hit cattle. That's right. They are all over the road all the time. Cows everywhere. And you come around a blind curve and there are 17 cows in the road. And you don't have time to hit your, your brakes. You just smack dab into the first cow that crosses your path. The cow is dead. My van, you get out, you look at it. My van is totaled. Now let's add some spice to the story. Let's hypothetically say that you don't have a driver's license. Which means you're an uninsured motorist. And I am still making payments on this van. What does that mean? A violation has occurred, brothers and sisters. And in this story, we have a violator and we have a violated. Who is the violator in this story? Do not say the cow. You are. You're the one that wrecked my van. Do you have the ability to pay for my van without insurance? Can you just incorporate that monthly car payment into your budget? For most people, no. Is there a series of events that are taking place inside of you currently? You've wrecked my van. I don't even know you've got my van. 
Are you feeling something now, right now at this moment? What are you feeling? Jim said terror. What else are you feeling? Guilt? Yeah, yeah. Fight or flight. Got it? What else are you feeling? Shame? This should be easier to some of you. We've all done bad stuff, right? What do you feel? I'm sorry, embarrassment? Yeah, maybe a little embarrassment. Okay, some desperation. What else? Responsible. Sad, good. Sad, good little man. What else? (laughs) Hopefully you would feel a little... Now you come to me and I'm just getting out of bed, unaware of the events that have transpired this morning. And I love this minivan and you tell me what has happened. Now, is there a violated involved? Oh, is there something happening inside of me right now? Anger, disappointment, rage, disbelief. Mad. When a violation occurs, there are two hearts and minds involved at any given moment, are there not? It's just as much reality that is transpiring here that is transpiring here. When we sin against God, which one is He in this mess? He's over here. And we assume he's feeling all of this stuff toward us, do we not? We assume this is where he's at. And so we go to him, we read certain verses, like what we've read today, and we think, oh, I need to confess and repent so that he'll let go of all this and be nice to me again. Anyone ever been there? Be honest. This is our headspace. This is where we see it. This is how we see it. What's interesting, this is not the picture the Bible paints at all. The Bible gives us first one word, salak. He is ready to forgive. But salak, do you know what it means in the Hebrew? It doesn't refer to the violated party letting anything go. It talks about the violator being cleansed of all the stuff that's going on inside of their headspace. Do you understand the difference? Salak is not referring to any change in God, but rather a change taking place in... Us. Remember I said we need not confuse what's going on in our conscience and what's going on in the heart of God. Are they two different things? Yes. When God says He's ready to forgive, what it says is He's ready to salak. At any moment, He wants to come in and take away all your feelings of shame and guilt and condemnation over anything you've ever done, no matter how bad it is. How many would like to experience that? Isaiah 55, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord. He will have compassion and to our God, for he, what does it say? Will abundantly what? Pardon. This word here for pardon is, guess which Hebrew word? Salak. It's referring strictly 
to a cleansing taking place not in God, but where? In us. Nehemiah 9.17 says, They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you, God, you are ready to what? Pardon. And what is that Hebrew word? Salah. Take away all of this. Why is he ready to do it? Why hasn't he already done it? I mean, are there people out there still plagued with this? Why hasn't he done this for everybody? Because they don't let him. Does he want to do it for everybody? Is he ready to do it for everybody? But he comes to them and tries to help them. And what do we do? We, we, we live in a state of denial. Well, what did I do that was wrong? I haven't done anything. Anyone ever been there? Don't raise your hands. God's wanting to free all of us from this, but we don't let him do it. It's interesting. 1 John 1, nine. Do you remember we read that earlier? It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to what? Forgive. The Greek word here is aphiomai. Do you see that? And it means a removal of guilt from one's own psyche. Aphiomai. It's salak in the, in the Hebrew. Aphiomai in the Greek. In the New Testament. If you confess, He is willing to aphiomai you. Take all this away, and then it says, and to cleanse us from how much? But who is being cleansed in this verse? We are. Now be very clear. Understand what I'm saying. The way we experience this is through repentance, confession, and faith. But how do we experience those three things, and what are they? Let me teach you the last Greek word this afternoon. The last Greek word is kerazomai. Kerazomai. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 7 it says, So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive. Kerazomai. Letting go of the ill feelings of those who have wronged you and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Notice what it's saying. It's, Paul here is talking not to the violator. He's talking to who? The violated. And he's saying, you should kerazomai. You should let all of this go and then seek to comfort. What does it say? Him. Kerazomai is different than those other words we looked at. They don't refer to a cleansing over here. They refer, it, kerazomai refers to a letting go by the violated party in their heart. This is what we think God's holding on to. Be honest, isn't it? This is what we're trying to affect. Most of the time when we repent and confess, we're not trying to cleanse this. We're trying to what? Change this over here, aren't we? But understand, repentance, confession, and faith are never applied to this part of the story. They are only the means through which we experience this. Well, how do we experience this? How do we get God to let us off the hook in His heart? How many would like to learn that this afternoon? How do we get God to let us off the hook? Well, the good news is so good. Look at Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. 
and forgive each other. Just as God in Christ also will forgive, has forgiven you. The Greek word here is kerazomai. Is it future tense like this over here? What tense is it in? It's past tense. This He has only done for those who will let Him because it's what's happening inside of them. But can He do this for everybody regardless of whether they want it or not? Can He let them off the hook in His heart? And what does the Bible seem to indicate? He has. Look at the Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord will forgive... No, just as the Lord already forgave you, so also you should do. Whenever we see this aspect, it is never in the future dependent upon something you do. It is always in the past, already having been done for all. Isn't that incredible? God is not holding anything against any human being anywhere. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become in your life. He is not holding that against you today. Now, it may, you may feel bad because of it. Got it? And He wants to cleanse you of that. But He is not against you for anything you have ever committed in your life. Will you have the courage to believe that this afternoon? If you believe it, will you begin to see Him differently? Will it change the way you think? Will it change the way you feel? Will it change the decisions you make? Does this have the ability to set you free from your past so you can experience this and move into into a better future? Does it? The question you have to answer this afternoon is not whether God has cleansed you of all your shame and guilt. He'll do that. The question you have to answer this afternoon is for you yourself personally, do you really believe That no matter what you've done in your life, that God in His heart has already let you off the hook. No matter who you are, what you've done, whether you've confessed or not. Dare it be that good? Is the good news really that good? Look at Colossians 2.13, one of my favorite verses. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... It says He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven you, kerazomai, having forgiven us how much? How much? How much? What if you haven't confessed them yet? How many? What if you haven't repented of them yet? How many? What if you haven't, what if you have never said a sinner's prayer? How many? What if you haven't even committed them yet? How many has He forgiven you of? Isn't that an amazing truth? That He's already forgiven it all. This whole presentation can be summed up in one Bible verse. Look at 1 John 3.20. It says, if our heart condemns us, talking about this over here, if your heart condemns you, notice what it says, God is what? Greater than our heart and knows how much? He knows more to condemn you for than your own conscience does, doesn't he? But does he? He's greater than your heart. To illustrate this this afternoon, I want to share with you the story, a true story of a young girl that I cannot wait to meet one day. I believe with all my heart she's going to be in the kingdom. I can't wait to meet her. Her name is Maria. 
She grew up in Brazil. Anyone ever been to Brazil before? Anybody here ever been to Brazil? I think next to my wife, Latin young women have the potential to be some of the most gorgeous women on the planet. And Maria was one of these. She was drop-dead gorgeous. Not only was she beautiful, she was actually beautiful where it counted. She was beautiful on the inside as well. At recess, they played a lot of soccer. That's what they do in Brazil, right? They would play a lot of soccer. And when it was her turn to be a team captain, she would always start from the worst soccer player and move her way up the list to the best. Why do you think she did that? She knew what it felt like to be picked last on the recess field. And she didn't want anyone else to experience that. Would you say that's a genuinely nice person? Not only was she gorgeous, not only was she nice, she was funny. She could take the grumpiest person on the planet and bring a smile to their face, sometimes even make them laugh. Not only was she funny, she was smart. She had the best grades in her class. She had a dream that one day she would leave her little village and she would go to the city of Rio de Janeiro and she would make a success out of her life. But her mother feared that day because her mother knew that if Maria ever went to that city, there was only one way that Maria could support herself. One day, Maria's mother woke up, walked into Maria's bedroom, and Maria's bed lay empty. Maria's mother's worst nightmare had begun. She took her entire life savings. She took all the money she had. She stopped by one of those photo booths. You know what I'm talking about where you put in the money and you get back a strip of pictures? She spent her last bit of savings. All of the money she had to her name simply taking picture after picture after picture after picture of herself. She took all of those pictures. She stuck them in a duffel bag and she got on a bus She went into Rio de Janeiro. She went to the darkest places of town. She went to houses of prostitution. She went to crack houses. She went to hotels that pay by the hour. She went to anywhere where she thought Maria might pass that way. And what she did was she would take out one of her pictures. She would separate them with a pair of scissors, flip them over, and write the same message on the back of every single one of them. Then she would take that picture... She would either stick it into the crack of a mirror in a bathroom wall, tape it to a payphone, or staple it to a bulletin board. She just went to that city and disseminated pictures of herself all over the town. After a few days, all of her pictures were gone. And she got back on the bus to go home and wait. Six months go by. How long? Six months go by. A miracle. Six months go by and Maria wakes up one morning in one of those institutions that we previously mentioned. She drags herself out of bed before the person she was with that night realizes she's gone. She grabs what little she has. And if you were to see her today, the innocence on her face is gone. The joy is missing. She's been through so much pain and she carries that with her. So much disappointment, all her dreams have been shattered. She stumbles into a cigarette-smoke-filled hallway, making her way to the lobby. She wants to just pass through without being noticed, but she remembers, I need to make a phone call. How much time had gone by? 
She walks over to the payphone. She picks up the receiver. She's dialing the number. And as she's waiting for the other person on the other end to pick up, she looks down and on the side of this payphone, do you know what was still there? How does something stay taped to a payphone for six months? She begins to stare at this picture as she's listening for the other person to pick up. She has been through so much. It's a blank stare. She's staring right at a picture of her mother and she doesn't even realize at first who it's of. And then it dawns on her. This is my mom. She drops the receiver. She picks the phone, the, the, the picture up. She begins to stare at it. What is a picture of my mother doing in a place like this? She turns that picture over. Do you know what her mother had written? My dearest Maria, no matter what you've become, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter to me. Just come home. And do you know what Maria did? She packed up what little she had left. And she went home. And I ask you if that's all it took. Why didn't Maria go home sooner? Because Maria thought that if she went home and told her mother that she had become a prostitute, what did she expect to get back from her mom? Tell me. Condemnation? Ostracized? Rejection? But hear me. When she saw that her mother already knew. And before she even took one step towards home, her mother had already forgiven her. That's what gave her the courage to go home. This afternoon, God wants so much more for your life than what you are living right now. Do you believe that? He wants so much more for you. But many people today, and you may be one of them, are afraid of going back home because you feel like you need to go through all this repentance and confession to try to change His mind about you. Hear me, His mind doesn't need changed about you. Before you even take one step towards the Savior, my friend, He has already forgiven you. Do you believe that? He has already let you off the hook. The message that God is crying out to you today is my dearest child, no matter what you've become or what you've done, it doesn't matter to me. Just come home. Do you want to go home today? I ask you, what is your picture of God? How do you see Him? If we can just see what He's really like, we will truly be free from all of our past. Do you believe it? If you can see how much He's forgiven you, that kindness will lead to the ability for you to forgive yourself. Do you believe that? And not only will it lead you to the ability to forgive yourself, it will also lead you to the ability to forgive those that have wronged you. So I challenge you today. Do not spend your energies trying to forgive others. Dare I say that? 
do not spend your energies even trying to forgive yourself. Rather, spend every fiber of your being in effort to believe how much you have been forgiven. Do you see it? And only then will all the others follow in its train. Do you want to be free from your past? How many today want to make the decision to choose? To choose right now that no matter how you feel here, you're going to choose to believe today that God has already forgiven you here. How many would like to decide to choose to believe that? That God has already let you off the hook. Let's pray. Precious Father, as we close this meeting today, Lord, we've began on the journey of emotional healing. We're not completed yet. We're not at the end of it yet. But Lord, we're starting to sense it. We're starting to taste it. Father, thank you so much for the forgiveness that's in your heart for every one of us already there, Lord. Father, today, Lord, we're sorry. We're sorry for what we've done. We're sorry for the decisions we've made. And we don't want to be controlled by that anymore. We don't want that to be our identity anymore. Father, we give you full permission. Come into our hearts. Take all that shame and guilt away. Set us free so we can experience life unlimited. In your precious name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you tomorrow, if you will look on your schedules, there are two titles that are very vague. They will make more sense to you after tomorrow, but the first one is intrinsic or imposed. And the second is entitled the, what does it say? The Awakening. That's right. I want to share with you, I am not giving you permission to miss the rest of this series. But if there are any presentations that you are going to miss, tomorrow should not be one of them. Tomorrow's session, we are going to go straight to that core and we're going to unlock and finish our time on emotional healing. You understand what I mean by that first ray of sunshine? We've began to lay a foundation for it today, but tomorrow is the most important meeting out of the entire series. You can miss other ones and be fine, but tomorrow's is the most important out of the whole time that we will spend with each other. Please, above all else, be here. All right? God bless you. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a safe trip home.